the impact of the movie, you know, was horrendous at first, but now people are really interested in the shark itself. Hello, and welcome to the Empathy Machine Podcast. I'm Andrew Ford, and joining me as always... Josh Ickes. And we are here to talk about a little movie from 1975 called Jaws. Wait, what? I don't know if it's... it's uh, well, we already made the joke last episode about how it's like lesser known, so I don't want to do that again. But Oh, okay, again. This is basically yeah one of the most successful movies of all time, and I'm sure there's no shortage of other people talking about it, but now we're going to talk about it. Oh, good. We have unique insights, don't we, Josh? Uh, at least somewhat, I think. <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, we have a somewhat unique experience with it now, I think. That's true. That's true. We, we've, we've done a lot of, I think, research into things that maybe aren't essential to, to, to getting a full picture of Jaws, but are nice little things to, to know about. We're, we're bringing information from the fringe of uh, Jaws fandom into the mainstream. Uh, there's at least a couple aspects that I think we're going to talk about that I haven't really heard talked about because generally speaking, you hear the same stories about, hey, the shark didn't work kind of things over and over again. Yeah, there's a lot of anecdotes that are, are sort of infamous now, but there's a lot and, you know, a lot of them are, are, are true. But then there's other things that like, even though everybody talks about them, there's no consensus about actually what uh, what what happened in, in certain scenarios. I'm talking about the USS Indianapolis speech, of course, but we can. Oh, we I thought you're talking later. about. I thought you're talking about Susan in the opening. Well, that's another one. Yeah, I mean, so, well, there we yeah. go. Yeah, we've got quite a few. Hey, look, I actually started with the opening. Not, I didn't jump to the end this time like I usually do. That's well, no, definitely you jumped not what to I the did. middle. I- and, yeah. I, and I pulled you back to the beginning. I'll take it. There's on one side, someone pulling me to the middle. And on the other side, I don't know. That, that didn't really work out. But but we could talk about the opening, I guess, if we want right now. Actually, we could how about... <laughs> let's, let's not talk about the opening of the movie. Let's go back in time a little bit and talk about right. the book. Because we read the book. Yes. So just... As kind of a little bit of insight, parting the kimono just a little bit here, on our our notes sheet that we share, our Google Doc, you wrote several paragraphs of like insight and and thoughtful uh, rhetoric uh, about the book. Uh, initially, I mean, I, I filled mine out a little bit more, but initially mine was just the first line, the first sentence that I wrote. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to leave up there, which it was, it's three words and it's just, oof, this book, that was my <laughs> review <laughs> originally. We've talked a little bit about it, but I would kind of like to talk about some of the elements from the book that didn't make it into the movie. Mm-hmm. If those would have added, uh, were they smart to keep them out? Stuff like that. I think we could start with the opening of the, of the book actually, because it opens much the same way the film does. Mm-hmm. And you follow Chrissy going down to the beach, but in, in any book, you're going to get more background on the characters, usually. In any, any book that's adapted for a film, like the film uses a lot of shorthand because, because they can. That's the takes advantage of the medium. But in the book, you get all this backstory about her and the guy that's with her, and then you end up going back and seeing like where she's staying and stuff. It's the kind of thing that normally gets cut out in a script because you realize you can jump from point A to point B, and you don't need all that 
interstitial information. Like you've never once thought about why like her boyfriend guy, whatever fling didn't uh, go to the cops immediately when he woke up, unless he did, you know, I don't know. But in the book, it's like, Oh, he woke up and she wasn't there. So he just assumed she was gone. And then later he ends up reporting to the cops. It's all this extra information. It's like, you can kind of elide all that because it's not really necessary. Right. And you're speaking in generalities here a little bit, mm-hmm. but also the movie does too. And I think it's all the better for it, mostly mm-hmm. because the book gives you a bunch of background information. It introduces two or three other characters by name who she was staying with for the summer or what have you, and then does nothing with them. Yeah. Yeah. They never that, return. That, yeah, that much of the plot like still only takes up the same amount story-wise. It doesn't amount to anything more, but he tries to like feed all this other information and it's where he starts setting up the the summer people versus the the locals. Mm-hmm. And it's it seems to play a much larger part in the book Mm -hmm. there's a conflict because chief brody is a local as opposed to an import which he is in the movie and in the movie that makes him kind of uh the stand-in for us in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways with regards to the the town like they're allowed to just come out and say things that should seem obvious to any locals because chief brody's brand new at at his job Mm mm-hmm he starts setting up all of this uh, haves versus have nots, the rich people versus the poor people. This early in the book, I was already getting the idea that Peter Benchley doesn't like uh, people with money very much. I mean, who does? I mean, let's be real. It's like <laughs> yes. the, the 1%, they, they take everything. They own 99% of the wealth. Yes. That's so terrible. Wait, is that the ratio? That I how forget. That works? I think okay. so. At any that, rate. That's not yeah, how it he, should he, work. He fucking hates them. Yeah, he he doesn't like people with money, and he kind of doesn't like people in general. I think a little bit of the story behind how he wrote the book, because I also read a book he wrote about. It's called Shark Trouble, uh-huh. and it's mostly it's, it's well, yeah, it is nonfiction. It's mostly about his like adventures with sharks after writing Jaws, and now he's like a very or he was before he passed away a very uh, uh, big advocate for sharks. Sort of after. People, I can't imagine why, but after Jaws became a success, people were terrified of sharks and wanted to, thought they deserved to, to die. And uh, he, he was more of a conservationist later in life. But uh, he does talk a bit about why he wrote Jaws. He actually came from a bit of money, if I'm remembering right. And his dad uh, put him in touch with the publisher. And the publisher was like, here's an advance if you write this book. And then he was, had to write this book in a hurry, essentially. And I think you can maybe tell a little bit that it was written quickly and i think there's there's a there's a resentment he felt that he had to write something really fast not to psychoanalyze him too much <laughs> he had to write something really fast <laughs> they didn't really feel like writing because he sold a he, he got a pitch bought and he maybe i don't know maybe there's some kind of psychological stuff going on there with him that doesn't necessarily mean that he hates people but he ended up creating a book full of hateable people <laughs> who do hateable things <laughs> and i feel like a lot of the stuff he sets up with the town and with the townies and like the haves and have nots, he also uses it to drive sort of a what feels like a really, really forced kind of wedge between Chief Brody and his, his wife, Ellen. I don't want to talk about that just yet because we that could be a whole, there's a lot there. <laughs> Too much. The other big thing that was cut out of the movie from the book was Mayor Vaughn's mob ties, which are not very... 
I don't know. Why don't you talk a little bit about how they're played out in the book? Because they're not very well explained. No, and and that's how it plays out in the book. It's <laughs> really, it's kind of frustrating because he keeps teasing that Mayor Vaughn has there's something mysterious. There's an additional reason why he's pushing to open the beaches. And I don't know that the story requires that. It actually kind of seems to, to me at least, to take away from what should be the primary motivator in that he's invested in the town just Mm -hmm. as a person. He lives there. I, I think that him pushing to open the beaches just so he looks good as mayor that's petty enough. Like yeah. you don't need to add layers on top of that. It, it kind of seems like it's needlessly muddling up his motivations and kind of the themes of the story. And when something like that happens, any kind of storytelling medium, when there's like additional things piled on top, it immediately becomes like you're spinning plates, right? So you mm-hmm. kind of have to keep this element going and that element going. The fact that, he's into the mafia for like a million dollars or something at this point because Mm. he's bought all these properties on spec basically when the market was low and he was hoping to sell them high and it doesn't come to any fruition it doesn't lead to any kind of greater understanding or any exciting plot developments it's just a thing that's happening and in a book that by and large i think it seems pretty like naturalistic and kind of slice of life about the town. It seems like this weird genre imported element that doesn't really need to be there. You know, it seems like it's kind of brought in from him wanting to spice it up and make it a little more exciting. But I I think it would have served just as well if that element hadn't been there at all. Absolutely. Well, I think he, I mean, he literally just leaves town at a certain point. Like he leaves, he doesn't even, you don't even see him leaving. He like leaves a note or something. Right. He's just, he's, pretty much just gone yeah <laughs> and, and and how the character acts is how the book treats a lot of these plot lines <laughs> i feel like i'm not saying that like everything has to always get resolved but uh, i did think a lot of the book salem's lot mm-hmm. while i was reading this because it's another it's a portrait of a small town in crisis and stephen king does a a fantastic job of going and visiting a bunch of different characters and the time you spend with them seems generally to add to the theme, the message, or the plot. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't seem just needless and, for lack of a better term, masturbatory. Like maybe some other elements of Jaws the book do. Would you care to lead us into the other thing that was cut out of the movie? Oh, I was already going on a tangent about Stephen King and talking about how much better he is at uh, character. Oh. But we <laughs> can go... I mean, we can we can dive into these murky waters too. Yeah. Well, just a spoiler alert for future episodes, though. I think we're going to get some time to talk about Stephen King in a couple of weeks here. So that's true. That's true. Yeah, we can talk about the the elephant in the room, I suppose. Ugh. Once the character of Hooper is enters into the narrative, Ellen Brody wants to fuck his brains out. And well, and <laughs> there, this is part of the the wedge that was was between mr and mrs brody here is the fact that ellen used to be a summer person mm-hmm. she and martin fell in love and uh, now she's a local and she doesn't quite know how to go from her life of privilege i guess to being a local in this tourist town the weirdest thing 
just about the setup of her and Hooper's relationship is the fact that she used to date Hooper's older brother mm-hmm. and she barely remembers Hooper, but he remembers her quite clearly. Yes. Yeah, he like yeah. always had a crush on her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if they get into like the actual age gap in between them, but it seems a little bit icky just from the jump, even, you know, a little bit suspect of this guy kind of like holding a torch for uh, Ellen all these years. And yeah, they immediately, and it seems like it's for no other reason than he also comes from money. Mm-hmm. Like that she is just all, all kinds of Randy for this fella, just all kinds of Randy. And I mean, it's a Randy lunch. Oh let's, yeah. Let's, <laughs> she meets him for lunch <laughs> at a hotel out of the way. This entire chapter of, of Jaws, the book, is about Ellen Brody trying to cheat on her husband, Chief Brody, probably the main character of the book, and I mean definitely the main character of the book, definitely the main character of the movie, because, I don't know, like, she's un, she's dissatisfied, and she sees, like, a way out or whatever. We get a lot of discussion, probably the frankest sexual discussion. This would never happen in real... I, I don't think this would ever happen in a public place in real life. I don't know. Maybe maybe I just... Maybe I don't I don't move in these circles. <laughs> but the discussion they have is fucking insane. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like a... Well, this is, like, what, the second or third time that they've that they've talked to each other since mm-hmm. since he was like eight years old. They do seem to go off the deep end rather quickly. I mean, he goes right into like, do you ever fantasize about fucking a bunch of black guys? Yeah. And that's really in the book. Like I thought, yes. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and, and not just fucking a bunch of black guys, but also getting raped by them. Right. Yeah. Like, like Mel Gibson yes. brought up in his famous jacuzzi uh, tapes. Yeah. <laughs> The jacuzzi tape. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, it's insane. And she and and what's even more insane? And she's like, I mean, maybe. I mean, she doesn't like dismiss it out of hand or so. There's no, and it isn't about whether or not it's like politically correct. I mean, that's that's we we passed that a long time ago in this scene. It's just like, yeah, where did this come from? <laughs> like, what? Who was Peter Benchley hanging out with? Like, what was his life like? That led to this. And what's fascinating about it, too, is the entire chapter is the conversation about what they're going to do. And then we completely, which I'm fine with at this point. By the time we get to the end of the conversation, I'm like, I don't want any more of this. I didn't want any of it to begin with. And then it gets to the end and they completely elide this actual sex scene. It's like the goes straight to her going home and like, I got to throw these away, throw the underwear away so Brody doesn't, doesn't catch it. And it's just like man like that whole chapter and then and yeah and chief brody never finds out right like he doesn't find out that she cheated on him no but he's suspicious yeah. the whole rest of the book and causes him to resent hooper even more than he already does just because he's suspicious and i don't know that he ever actually even verbalizes it even internally he, mm. he keeps saying things like where was hooper on that wednesday and it just seems like he's incredibly intuitive that he figured this out within about 30 seconds, but also kind of an idiot because he never actually reaches the conclusion. It's it's really strange. It it seems just like thrown in there to create more melodrama and tension between the two dudes. 
mm-hmm. which doesn't need to exist. It's really weird. And then the book seems to be like punishing the character of Hooper. I mean, it seems to be punishing everybody, the reader, uh, everybody. <laughs> no, it pun- it's like out as punishment for his for uh, contributing to, to marital infidelity. Uh, Hooper is uh, viciously eaten by a shark. Yes. And not only that, uh, he's proven wrong in that the cage was not sturdy enough. I think but he's still standing by like the cage is fine. And then he, you know, so he's, he's proven wrong intellectually. He's disproven. And, and then he's, he's eaten, which apparently not to skip ahead too far, but apparently in the movie, he was also supposed to die initially, but then they got really good actual footage of a shark that they wanted to cut in where the cage was empty. And so they worked it out so that he could survive, which to me just seems like, I mean, obviously it's very well executed in the movie, but there's no need to, I don't know. There wasn't a need to kill him in the book either. It doesn't really, the story function is just, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't know. No, it's just this other thing about the, like the locals versus, you know, the summer people, it seems like Mm -hmm. it's kind of like everybody who's on the, on the outside of society, Quint, uh, Hooper, Mm -hmm. Everyone who's on the outside of like this little clique seems to just be punished and yeah, just not cared for. One of the things that's interesting that we do get in the book that it's not directly replicated in the movie, but kind of the feel of it is are the little interstitial moments at the end of some of the chapters Mm -hmm. where eventually, and this is, I think some of the best writing, the book itself isn't badly written. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, like overly laborious to read or anything, but these little interstitial moments where we get generally anonymous people from the town interacting with each other. And, you know, it's like thin slices of kind of humanity that were really nice. What did you think about how that vision of the town played against, you know, the, the fuller version vision that we actually get? I think he, he abandons it after the first, like it's only in a, a couple of early chapters and he, he sort of, foregoes it in favor of all this other melodrama and nonsense and it just i don't know like it it worked like those are the best parts and they they do seem to be at least seem to at least have been an inspiration or a launching off point for the film basically making all these individual characters casting a lot of locals and, and local actors but also like just giving them all complete like giving them so much life and having the town around the main characters be really vibrant and i feel like what happens with like as the book goes on we just the shark's threatening the whole town but and that's what the movie figures out it's like they need to save the whole town we need to like the whole town and that raises the stakes and we care more about what's happening but in the book it's like it just gets more insular like they have to kill the shark brody has to kill the shark because to prove he's a man i guess it, right and it doesn't i mean there's so much more going on in the film and I don't want to just be shitting on Peter Benchley and the book. I think we both agree that the book isn't great, right? Yes. I, yes. But, but it That's did serve as a launching off point for one of our favorite movies. And it basically reads like a first draft. And the second draft is always going to be better than the first draft and so on and so forth. And Spielberg had plenty of time to redraft and he had plenty of writers helping him out. And he has a great storyteller's instinct in the first place. So... It's not really fair to compare him as a storyteller to Peter Benchley or to hold Benchley to that standard, I don't think. But it is, it's just, it's interesting to, to see how well the film executes things that are executed so poorly in the book and how, how wise it is about the things it changes 
and how grateful we should be to have the movie be as good as it is. So I think we can both agree that it was wise for the filmmakers to cut out certain elements of the book that would have muddied the waters, no pun intended, of the film. Can we talk a little bit from like a craft perspective, how these other things may or may not have worked in the movie and kind of what that would have done to the film, you think? I think the big one is the the mafia subplot. Mm -hmm. I think they make the character of Mayor Vaughn much richer by simplifying his, like what's driving him. Uh, his uh, his goal his goal is just to keep the beaches open so that the tourists come, which makes complete sense. Right. <laughs> For it to end, and, and you know you get that about the you understand that that's that's the main driving force behind the economy of the town. But then in the book, yeah, obviously the mafia, he's he owes money to the mafia and he has to leave. And I don't know, it, it feels like it's an unnecessary additional like thing that never pays off. And it's like I mean, if the mob comes up <laughs> at the end of the book. And kills the shark. I mean, that's a right. dumb thing. Or if Quince <laughs> mobbed up or something. I mean, if it paid off in any way, it would be like, well, it's weird that they left that out. But yeah, it's. And I think that was one of the first notes, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, David Brown and Richard Zanuck gave Spielberg. Like, get rid of this because we don't need it. That and get rid of the, the, the sex. There is a movie about what is it? He was like, went from, I think, lawyer to mayor and. Mm-hmm. somehow met these monsters there's a movie there there is a story mm-hmm. there it's just not this story yeah and i i think that i wrote something about best note ever as far <laughs> as far as <laughs> chopping that stuff out yeah because it does it like it streamlines this other element of it and it puts all the focus on the shark everything everyone has their own reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think this is part of like Spielberg's humanity in the way that he treats his characters. You know, mayor Vaughn has his own reasons and they're good reasons from his viewpoint. Mm -hmm. He's, he's not doing something bad because he hopes people get eaten. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he really is hoping that this can help revitalize the town to open the beaches again. And the scene in the movie that you don't get in the book which it's I think it's overlooked a lot in discussions is the scene at the hospital after the attack on the beach. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where most of the attacks happen. It's a shark movie. <laughs> but when the Brody's kid went into shock uh, in in the small pond right off the the ocean that the shark went into and ate their ate their Boy Scout instructor or what have you. But not the leg. The leg they just they, this is on the the seafloor. Yep. Yeah, yeah, he he eats everything but the leg. Mm-hmm. That scene, first of all, you get like a great little moment with um, Ellen and the kid. He he wants her to bring what is it? He wants ice cream, coffee, ice cream. Yeah, and it's just this very sweet little moment. And then you see Mayor Vaughn standing there, and he's mumbling to himself. Mm-hmm. He's trying to figure out his own justifications and his oh murray hamilton it takes a lot to play a scene like that correctly i think something where you're talking to yourself in a panic (laughs) like there's way too many ways that that can go cheesy but i think that it's done nearly perfectly that he really does seem to be working through his talking points versus what he just witnessed and the little fact that comes out towards the end of the scene where brody confronts him and tells him, no, you're going to sign this order. We're going to close the beaches. We're going to hire Quint. You know, I don't care what it costs. You're going to be a good man and you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And 
Vaughn says my family was out there too. And like you realize that he has like disassociated this entire time. He really has been like looking at his legacy and himself as a mayor and trying to protect that vision of himself. He hasn't thought of himself as part of a family. I don't think up until he saw them put in danger and it's this great little note and it speaks to what I think is like one of the, the major themes or probably the major theme of the movie, which is how do you define yourself as a man for lack of a better term? How do you define yourself as, as a person who exists within a society and what do you owe to your family and stuff like that? Like, I think that's, Apart from, hey, we're going out on the water and chasing a shark, that seems to be what motivates Brody into action. Like every single time is not so much his ties to the community, but his ties to his family. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that that's that's very well said. And I don't have anything to add other than the fact that it's very telling that the character of Mayor Vaughn is, though, though given less technically to do in terms of the plot, is a m- infinitely richer character in the film compared to the book. Mm-hmm. I feel like the, the knock on a lot of literary adaptations, and we don't have to get into a whole conversation about that, but just a mini sidebar is that there's so much more depth of character and, and backstory in a book. It's much richer. And the thing about Jaws is it has that depth as a film right. where the book doesn't necessarily have it. So it's, it's, it's like a reverse example. Looking at some of the behind the scenes stuff, when you mentioned the lagoon scene, it's it's interesting that that was originally much longer, and and put the poor kid through so much more like horrific stuff, right? Because uh, the guy who gets eaten by the shark is like basically in the shark's mouth and like grabs onto the, the Brody kid and is like pulling him along with him at one point right. as the sharks put like like driving him along, and. In the footage we that that exists of the deleted scene, like it looks hokey as shit. So if that's the only reason they cut it, that's good. And they used like another take and just like moved it. the camera just moves away from the kid in the in the water, like the sharks going past him, right. which was the right move. But and I don't know if it was just cut because it was hokey as shit or if it was cut for pacing or whatever. But it definitely it works a lot better and it 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 just seemed like that's another case of not just being disciplined and knowing what to adapt from the novel and how to change the novel to make it into a movie, but being disciplined about what should remain in the movie and what would essentially break the film. What would, what would push the tone a little too far for it to come back and just be a straightforward adventure movie, which is what it ultimately ends up being. And a great one at that. Right. What do you think about the, the fact that in later years, and I don't remember which, which source I found this in, But Spielberg regrets, I think, putting the kids in danger and maybe the death of Alex. He he thinks that it was a cheap way to get to to garner sympathy Mm -hmm. and, you know, that it was kind of exploitative. Like, do you think that it is or is it something that was necessary? It's tough to say. Obviously, I think it works in the film as it is. I know I hadn't I'm trying to think of because I've heard that, too. That, it, that in later years he regretted it, but I feel like, I don't know. I mean, yes and no. It doesn't feel exploitative because I don't think he's capable of rendering something so that it feels exploitative. All, the only thing he exploits is, is your, like, heartstrings. He's not really, a, like, he's not an exploitation <laughs> filmmaker who's like, he, he doesn't have that impulse, I don't think. Maybe, maybe he does. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But 
Well, uh, and the thing is, like, early in his career, most other hands, you know, I don't want to generalize, and a lot of other hands, Jaws would have been just a, a B-movie, a Roger Corman film, basically. Right. You know, I think there would have been a lot more focus on bikini babes and, you know, gore or mm-hmm. uh, the boat would have gone really fast instead of just like <laughs> instead of just like floating through the uh through the scene sometimes and that's part of i think the beginnings of you know Spielberg making these like rousing pictures that can speak to a wide audience and probably part of the changing of Hollywood from you know the more uh, kind of heavy dramatic fare of the of the 70s you know, for better or worse, like this is the the beginnings of the modern blockbuster, except mm-hmm. for he is still like one of the best practitioners of it because he is able to not only give you kind of uh, just the right amount of the excitement and fun and, you know, occasionally collateral damage and, you know, the, the big stupid action movie things, but he gives you heart and feeling and theme along with it, which is what a lot of the imitators seem to miss and i feel like Mm -hmm. this is a nearly perfect case study in how to do a film like this because personally big action set pieces don't work unless you have the groundwork set up that you care about the people that are in danger A, a lot of times i'll be watching like a more modern or even you know a movie from the 80s that hasn't done its the the groundwork and it sets up a great fight scene or a great chase scene or something. And I just don't care about the outcome. Like I check out in the middle of what should be a very exciting scene because I don't care about the characters. Mm -hmm. And I start watching it kind of for for its technical merits. And there's something to be said for, I don't know, a movie like crank or you shoot them up or something that is, that is just fight scenes or well, okay. John wick, you know, already gets your heartstrings at the beginning because of the dog. But mm-hmm. anything like that, the, there's movies that are, are fun just because of their choreography. But I think that Spielberg is able to work kind of on both levels simultaneously. Just to be clear, I want to, I want to, I'm holding my hand really high right now. And I'm saying yes. this is where Crank is. And I'm lowering my hand a lot lower. And this is where Shoot 'em Up <laughs> is. I'm okay. just going to throw that out there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and where's John Wick? I, I wouldn't even put that. It's so different. Because those two okay. are like, those two are like cartoonish deliberately cartoonish and they're great i mean i like shoot 'em up but i just don't think it's i think that there's a, a, a over uh, overuse of cgi and it's a little too silly for me at times and crank is tra- has that transgressive sp- like trauma spirit yes. but executed in a much better film than any like than most i guess trauma films i'll say most just to be safe i'm sure there's a couple good ones i haven't <laughs> seen them the best ones but i'm sure but yeah john wick's more it's not as goofy deliberately goofy as those it's a much more straightforward jack reacher type like a better version of jack reacher i guess type of adult thriller anyway <laughs> he does work <laughs> on both levels he yes. he's a he's a, he's the the thing that makes him such a great storyteller is that he he knows he knows how to communicate to his audience like exactly like in and i don't know and i don't know the best way to put it but it's like I feel like he is almost more comfortable communicating through the medium of film and, and cinematic narrative than he is in like an interview. Like this is like, he would prefer to tell stories this way. Like if, and I, I, I think you get a lot of that. I, that's why I think the film Lincoln is a very good example 
like that's a very a very close identification character for Spielberg. Like mm-hmm. Lincoln will be when faced with a moral quandary, will launch into a story. And I feel right, like right. I th- I think when you get to the point where that's how you f- like I feel like that's just how Spielberg functions day to day. Where he will he would be more comfortable telling you like relating the story to you than he is. Like I don't think he views it as really a job. It's more oh, like no. this is ha- this is what he has to do. Like, right. He doesn't really have a choice. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's a big. Not to psychoanalyze him too much, because God knows I, I do enough of that in my free time. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely true. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and, and not to talk about all of his movies, but I, I do want to stay focused on Jaws because we. I mean, we could talk about Jaws for the next six hours and not really, not really exhaust the topic one thing that i thought was uh was interesting is that uh there's so many stories about the making of the film that are mm-hmm. that have become like sort of you know legend to the point that there were two screenplays two different screenplays that made it onto the blacklist that were about the making of jaws one was called uh, the mayor of shark city and the other one was called the shark is not working and i'm not they they are uh online and and uh i read them and Josh read my notes and decided he did not feel like reading them. (laughs) (laughs) And I cannot blame him. (laughs) I guess that that brings up a larger question. Like, do you think you can make it like honestly dramatize the making of a film or is it just too like patting yourself on the, on the back to make a movie about making a movie in this way? I don't know. There are good movies made about making movies, obviously, but uh, these are never going to be made into movies. I'm fairly certain. Right. If only, I mean, they may ma- eventually make a movie about the making of Jaws, but it will not be based on either of these scripts because they, they just, they're very rote in the way they, 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 they don't really work events into the narrative. They kind of just like, Oh, checklist, this happened on the set checklist, this happened on the set. And they kind of go one by, you know, thing by thing. And they don't seem to be interested in finding any kind of real through line. Like the, like any, any, new story to like they don't know why they're telling the story other than that they like the stories and they're recounting them it seems to me and that's frustrating right so your criticism of them is that they don't do the thing that jaws does which Precisely. is Th- thank you, other- you for thank you for making it relevant <laughs> <laughs> also i th- i think that i would like for us to adopt the term uh, thing by thing mm-hmm. as any time that a movie doesn't actually have anything below the surface mm-hmm. you know it's it's kind of the the one thing follows another rules mm-hmm. it, it just goes thing by thing it's fine it's, it's been, <laughs> and, and and then this happens instead of this happens because this happens therefore exactly. this happens yeah the lack of finding anything to to say i think is i mean that's what plagues most movies in my opinion mm-hmm. i mean most unsuccessful films mm-hmm you know, they they can work on a lot of other levels, but the difference between something that could be quite good and something that's a classic is, f- you know, finding another nerve underneath, whether it's accidental or not. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes movies stumble upon some other thread that wasn't intended. You know, over the years, I think uh, George Romero has gone back and forth about whether his movies mean things. <laughs> or particularly what they would mean, but the threads of cons- consumerism and racism and all that stuff get brought up over and over again when people are discussing his films. So obviously, uh, you know, at least half of art is in the the, the receiver. 
mm-hmm. you know, those things are super important. And the fact that these scripts could approach something that should be really rich <laughs> and not really shed any new light. And they just kind of cover, they cover it thing by thing, probably in a less successful way than something like Jaws, the film inventory does. I would, I would venture to guess, you know, I haven't read them, but that film inventory you turned me on to was fantastic. The film inventory is uh, really great because it basically is serves as like an audio commentary where Spielberg noti- notably doesn't record audio, audio commentaries for his movies or include any on any of his official releases. So you end up getting like interviews in the film inventory from like you know Richard Dreyfuss and some that contradict each other from different people. <laughs> yes. um, and then you get uh, Spielberg talking about the film, talking about making the film. You get contemporaneous interviews from when the film was coming out and modern interviews or like more modern interviews from when he's talking about looking back on the success and like, you know, what it was like being on set. And you get, you just get all this information and you get to watch the movie again and you get to, you know, see them, the extended scenes and deleted scenes sort of spliced into the the fabric of the narrative so you can see how they would have worked in theory so it's like a it's just a really neat thing that seems to be legal <laughs> i think it it operates on the fair use mm-hmm. doctrine in that it's primarily an educational tool but yeah they're i don't know if you steal from enough other copyrighted places is it then it's safe i don't know it's <laughs> There's a whole like girl talk gray area I feel like, going on here, but no, it, it, it is fantastic. And I think that it's more engaging and just as sheds just as much light as like reading the jaws log or something like that. Yeah. The jaws log does have some stuff that is not in there, which is good. Uh-huh. I've actually reminded of it. Uh, the uh, film critic, uh, Matt Zoller cites film and TV critic, media critic, cultural critic who writes for RogerEbert.com. He posted on Twitter like a, a long thread about how he had ju- he had just finished reading the Jaws log for the first time, I guess, and was like, "Oh my God!" Like he he nails down Gottlieb, uh, Carl Gottlieb, who wrote the Jaws log and was a, one of the main writers on the film, and he plays the a reporter wearing red pants, in in the film. Um, but he uh, he basically nails down the chronology of the USS Indianapolis speech to a certain extent. Like he doesn't definitively state. I don't believe, but he seems to be like, we all took passes at it. John Milius took a pass at it. I took a pass at it. And then Shaw's, Robert Shaw's pass was the final pass. It was finished before production started. And that's what he did. And it's just, it's, it, it's good to have that nailed down. Cause I believe, I think lore has always been like, John Milius is a, you know, he's, he's John Goodman from the big Lebowski. He's just a crazy Vietnam obsessed guy who had wrote this brilliant speech and um, you know he contributed in other ways to the f- to the film, uh, notably the um, the moment when Quint smashes a beer can, and then uh, Richard Dreyfus tries to one up him or like match him by uh, smashing a water cup. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, that was that was supposedly directly from Milius, and I'm sure there's other ways in which that came up. He may have even Milius may have even brought up the idea of the Indianapolis as as something that Quint's character went through, but the actual speech. Robert Shaw, as if the performance wasn't good enough already. <laughs> well, and the Indianapolis speech and the the comparison of their scars, mm-hmm. that whole sequence, uh, along with one other, I think is what makes Jaws Jaws for me. It's mm-hmm. 
like on the podcast film spotting i don't know ages ago they did a one of their top fives was the was it best small moments in big movies something along those lines Mm -hmm. these were like two of the ones obviously the indianapolis speech is kind of you know could be a little scenery chewing it could be more of a big moment but the men bonding is Mm -hmm. like a perfect example of that but an even smaller moment that i absolutely love do you know where i'm going as it the as a the dinner table it is the dinner table yeah. <laughs> that sequence i think is is so beautiful so uh within the the film there's just been another attack it's the uh is it after oh it's after they they catch the first shark the tiger shark it's <laughs> I think it's a Macau. A <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> so it's just after th- they catch this other shark, and then there's immediately another attack. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it, nothing is going right for Brody, and he's sitting there alone, basically drinking, and his his kid is sitting across from him. Mm-hmm. And I'm never actually sure. Like, does he have two? kids is it two or three yeah he has two kids well okay. uh but real quick uh in the dinner scene i believe it starts with he pours hooper a glass of wine and he pours his wife a glass of wine and then he pours himself like almost the rest of the entire bottle yeah he, <laughs> like pours he himself a, a, like a tumbler of wine actually i think he <laughs> pours his first and then he pours theirs and it's kind of like graciously looks at them mm-hmm. but the the very beginning before a hooper comes in is is Brody sitting across from his kid and Brody's just sitting there. He's kind of, he's, he's pouting. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a lot of movies, it would be the scene where someone looks into a mirror mm-hmm. uh, and takes stock of their lives. So I remember, and this is a totally personal reading. This movie came out on, out on DVD around the same time that my son was born. And so that kind of like gives you a, a new set of eyes. And I watched this, movie that I had seen tons of times and I come to this scene and I see him sitting across from his, his son and his son is mirroring his actions and it takes Brody a a second to notice this. And then he starts playing into it. He starts making goofy faces Mm -hmm. and the sequence ends or that, that little scene, that snippet ends with Brody leaning over to his kid and saying, give us a kiss. And his son says, why? And Brody says, because I need it. And there's so much contained in that. There's so much like meat in that to me mm-hmm. that for me, suddenly not that I needed any other explanation besides he's a, he's a good sheriff, but he was sitting there and he was seeing that literally his actions are being mirrored by his kid mm-hmm. and taken to the larger extreme. What is he going to do? Is he going to be someone who? lets himself be bullied by people who have other interests that ultimately aren't in everyone's, you know, best interest that it's not saving the the town. It's saving the town financially, but not physically. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like it's a moment where Brody's reflecting on himself and then he sees himself reflected. And, you know, he understands that it's, it's kind of like the gunslinger seeing the small kid get gunned down and he goes, Oh, okay. Now I have to go after the bandits. It's mm-hmm. that kind of a scene um, where he sees what his home life is and that 
he's the guy who kind of has to risk himself and he has to push against what Vaughn wants him to do. Mm-hmm. And immediately after that, Hooper comes in and tries to have a nice dinner conversation with him, mm-hmm. which <laughs> instantly turns to sharks and then turns to them going and cutting open the shark and seeing if there's a dead person inside of it. <laughs> and just that, that whole the like little chain of events where it could be, it could seem like a total throwaway moment. But for me, it has become kind of the key to understanding his motivations. And it's not just a, Oh, well then this happened. It is no, he, he gets the stones to go out and do this because he sees what is at stake. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that has made the movie richer every time that I've watched it since then is uh, realizing that all the people that are portrayed on screen, I feel like could have a life like that. They all have, their own things going on and this is just a small snippet it doesn't feel like anybody is really shortchanged and yeah i don't know except for maybe harry he does <laughs> I, I don't know what else harry has going on besides having a real bad hat it is a bad hat though that's some, bad, some hat. bad hat <laughs> <laughs> that's really and I, I think that's a and maybe this is reading a little into his you know influences at the time but i feel like that's a pretty that's an influence from from robert altman or or maybe just altman was was operating on a a strain of parallel thinking at the time because Mm -hmm. uh, this came out the same year as nashville which is a very similar like everybody i mean writ large you know at least 23 people in nashville have complete stories going on on any given weekend it's pretty uh it's the same kind of the same thing i love about that film is the same thing i love about jaws it's very interesting that they kind of came out simultaneously because they're they're both they both do i mean jaws less so because it's more about the shark later but you still get this full portrait of this town i mean i feel like going to amity going to visit amity at this point would be like a formality you know or going to visit wherever they shot it'd be like i feel like i've been there you know right right so i think i think that's really interesting it's it's a mark of his i believe we've mentioned it before is his, his humanist approach he's one of our most empathetic filmmakers in terms of just he doesn't tend to deal in in his narratives uh, don't tend to deal don't tend to deal in terms of like pure evil even when he makes schindler's list like ray finds his uh, villainous uh, goth is a uh, is still like a, a rich human character right i mean he's not pure evil he's just i mean he's pretty close but he's he's not utterly amoral just uncaring like he still has thoughts he still has impulses he still has a life i think that's the mark especially of when you can i mean when you can imagine what making that film was like for him having had relatives who like right. lived through it or at least lived in america during the time that was going on and heard about it I mean, and being Jewish and, and having that something like that happen and having empathy for the people who perpetrated that is is incredible. And, you know, a mark of him as just a good person. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that everybody should have just in their day-to-day life. But when you have that as a storyteller and you can, you can put it into a film that people see, then, I mean, that's just incredible. Like, that's, that's like humanitarian work (laughs) i mean that's kind of like my whole mo for for a lot of the things that i do is that stories matter i mean it's partially because it is the way that i understand the world by and large but i think you know even though he is a a a straight white cis dude you know coming out of 
uh, an older time. For me, it is the beginnings of like understanding the world and that we all have a place in it. And uh, I don't know. It's that's it seems like a lot to put on a shark film. <laughs> I mean, Sharknado, I don't think we could have this discussion about, maybe. Uh, well, okay, we can have a long conversation about all the problems with the Sharknado movies at a much later <laughs> date, but I, I want them out of this Jaws podcast, and I want them out yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that it's one of the things that made Spielberg unique at that point in time was was being able to take this kind of genre material and elevate it, mm-hmm. and... I don't know. Personally, I feel this is the thing that I see a lot of times when something is successful. You look at the the sequels, you look at the copycats, they they miss what is essential about the thing that they're copying. They'll gravitate and fixate on uh, like the loud parts. They'll fixate on the big flashy parts, but they they won't get the small details right. And the thing is, the magic of the original was all in the small details, it turns out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more the problem that people actually have with sequels and things and remakes is that it misses the the magic of the original. It misses the, the little things that made it special as opposed to, oh, there's no original idea as well. Jaws was adapted from a book. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, I, I firmly believe that there's really nothing new under the sun. Everything you're doing is just mashups of what's come before. The important thing is putting your own stamp and viewpoint on it and maybe taking things and treating them differently. But it's something that it just, it kind of boggles my mind over and over again when I see something that like has a really good pitch and then just misses the mark mm-hmm. because it doesn't give that kind of life to it's characters, you know, it's, it seems to operate in, uh, I think that every movie teaches you how to watch it in the first couple of minutes. And Spielberg is like a master of that because this movie gives you a horrifying, you know, slasher film opening mm-hmm. and also gives you people bumbling and being real people. Mm-hmm. within the first couple of minutes it's not just um i mean the opening could be basically the opening to friday the 13th mm-hmm. you know it's <laughs> similar people sneak off for a tryst things go poorly hijinks ensue but just how naturalistic and uh you know apart from like how it's shot and everything but just the, the moment that he chooses to capture with you know a little bit of flirting across the fire mm-hmm it just seems so it puts you in the world like instantly and it, do, it doesn't hold you at arm's length. Like it's inviting you into this world. And I, I feel like it's a great hook. And it, and it foregoes the strong likelihood that no beach party like that has ever happened. At least oh, I've never been on. to one. I, I don't know. I don't know if they exist. I don't know. Uh, b- between this and karate kid, <laughs> I, I have to believe that they do. It's, it's what, you know, what Spielberg famously said when Benchley was, I don't know if it was when Benchley, but scuttlebutt, whatever, the rumor, Benchley was like, I can't believe you're going to blow up the shark at the end. That's a terrible ending. And he's like, if I, if I have them for two hours, they'll give me five more minutes. Right, right. And that's what he, he, it's not that he had them buy into the shark early on. He had them buy into the fact that there was a crazy cool party on a beach. Right. In the middle of the night. Yes. I hesitate to, because I did read 
too fictionalized, lightly fictionalized recreate, you know, narrative right. recreations of what actually happened and books about what actually happened. So I really don't want to conflate the two. <laughs> and I might by accident. If I do, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying not to. Right. But uh, it's, I don't know. It's Spielberg gives us like something real by giving us something totally unreal. Mm-hmm. There's a magic to that of being able to tell a story that is utterly ridiculous. I mean, no, it's over the top and he does this over and over again. Mm-hmm. There's recognizable human characteristics happening within it. And I think that's why Jaws is a goddamn masterpiece. <laughs> there you go. Well, and it's interesting, especially I feel like it's pretty much inarguable that no one's had a larger impact on modern film culture than Spielberg and his films. Mm-hmm. And I think you get a lot of stuff. And I'm not just naming things to shit talk them. I'm naming them as examples because I like stranger things for the most part, but stranger things is something that they, they, and and a lot of other things like it, they, they, they seize on the aesthetic aspects of Spielberg stuff like jaws, like the, like chief Brody being a cool character, waking up and having a beer or whatever turns into, was it, uh, what's the character's name? Hooper. And, uh, that David Harbor plays, uh, it's, it's, uh, hop hopper. Yes. Okay. Well, again, (laughs) uh, but he's very clearly like a Chief Brody type and they seize on that, but then they don't really get at the underlying like reasons for why we cared in the first place. They're just like, he's a neat character and it's a good performance and we care because it's a a pretty well done show, but it's not Jaws, you know, it's not, he's not Chief Brody because Chief Brody gets a full complete arc and it's just a super compelling character and Roy Shatter's a great actor. And then you get Stranger Things, which is like, I don't know. It it's good, but it's not Jaws. I feel like I'm just shit talking Stranger Things. I'm not trying to do that. I, I'm using Which, it as, a, um, as an example of a tendency, not just in the things people like, but in, in in an industry that prizes. Oh, you can make something look like this. Yeah, cool. Okay, we'll hire you to make something that looks like this. Like Colin Trevorrow, right. we'll hire you to make Jurassic World because you can make you can you've worked with special effects before in a movie, and you made a movie that superficially has aspects of an Hamblin entertainment light type film, you know, and safety not guaranteed. Right. And they, so they hire these people based on aesthetic ability without them having demonstrated any kind of narrative proficiency or cinematic intelligence. Wow. That, that last bit, like you took it and I don't think you're going to go with the, they didn't have any cinematic intelligence. That was that's pretty far. But well, no, I don't mean that. But yeah, it, no, but also yes, I totally well, understand. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree with you to a point. I mean, I think that's also. I mean, it's how we get Jurassic World, but it's also how we get the Sam Raimi Spider Man films. You know what I mean? Like Sam Raimi was a weird indie director who I, I think you don't understand how genius or idiotic someone is until you, you give them more power. I think know, that, like, yeah, I think that's, I don't know. I think, I think there's a pretty sizable difference between, I'm not saying they shouldn't just, I'm not saying studios shouldn't pluck into directors and give them a feature, but cause that's, I mean, obviously it works sometimes. Right. But I think when you have, there's a lot more demonstrated in the evil dead than there is in safety, not guaranteed. And he, it was also more than a decade before he made it, or at least a decade before he actually made a studio film after evil dead. If I'm unless evil dead two was a studio. Yeah. Studio ish. I think it was Dino De Laurentiis. Yeah. It is. That, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's a thing where I think through hindsight being 2020, 
you can always look back and see somebody's like here, you know, we're talking about Spielberg. You can look at this and duel and the things that he tried to do with his TV work. And you, you see the beginning threads of the, the humanity um, and some of the issues that he, he tackles again and again. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can look at somebody like, you know, Trevor or, or Josh Trank or uh, even someone who's been in the game a long time, like Tim Burton, mm-hmm. you can look at the things that have become hallmarks of them not making great, films you can see those in the in their early work as well so i think it it takes a little while to have context of because you could watch safety not guaranteed and go oh that's a great you know first time film then you kind of see you you could say that (laughs) (laughs) i mean very few things are are evil dead full disclosure i totally have an evil dead 2 poster hanging up above my um recording space right now so mm-hmm. i'm in the i'm in the bag for sam raimi a little bit mm-hmm. but it, you know i understand the the path of you know people like sam raimi and peter jackson mm-hmm. becoming you know big studio directors after kind of toiling away for a long time making really weird shit and you know being on kind of on the fringes and, and i understand like studios desire to speed up that process because um, they went oh it worked previously you know we started with all these film school guys who eventually became great directors then we sped up the process a little bit and kind of got these people making indie stuff Mm -hmm. and now it's they're trying to kind of short circuit the whole middle section of it which it might just be a a maturity thing it might be an experience thing some people maybe only have so many good films in them or only have films like on the the micro or mini budget level you know it's it's a lot of pressure to work with a a big cast and crew as opposed to Mm -hmm. you and five friends on the flip side we already know that i'm probably going to bring him up a lot jeremy sonye i think is a great example of someone who murder party (laughs) not a great movie i don't really think that i ever care to revisit it but through his other work uh, as a cinematographer, I think he learned a lot in the ensuing couple of years and blue ruin is fantastic. And I mm-hmm. can't even tell you the amount of times that I have watched in part or whole a uh, green room at this point. But I do think that looking back now, you see threads of humanism and his particular fascinations, like starting to emerge even with murder party. Mm hmm. So, you know, I think it all depends kind of on the later work that they turn out as to your understanding of of their first works. Mm -hmm. Much like Spielberg himself, we've now touched the entire studio system. (laughs) (laughs) There is a clear, I think, hope that maybe much like Spielberg was very young when he started, that they'll find another wunderkind who just started as young as Spielberg did and worked his way up that way. It doesn't always work out. I'm not saying there will never be another Spielberg, but but maybe. Hey everybody, Drew DeVore here. I'm the editor of the podcast, and I'm here to let you know that we decided to split this episode up into two separate parts, mainly because Josh and Andrew decided to talk about Jaws for three damn hours. 
Those guys really like to talk about Jaws. This has been a 79 Hawks production, and we hope that you will rejoin us for part two when it gets released in a few days. 